that's really what I've learned to appreciate. Absolutely everyone is going to have something to say about you, about what you've done, about what you're saying, about what you didn't do. All of them know how to do it better, but none of them will actually do it. Welcome to the Authentically Successful Show. I'm Carol Schultz, founder and CEO of Vertical Elevation, a talent equity and leadership coaching and advisory firm. We partner with founders and CEOs to create talent-centric organizations, either where they don't currently exist or rebuild companies into talent-centric organizations. We are committed to supporting your vision and values by creating healthy, successful companies, leveraging the best talent, retention, development, and succession strategies. Listen at the end of the show for information about becoming my next guest on one of the most important podcasts for building thriving companies. Here we go. Joining me today is Deponita Das, co-founder and CEO of Sorcero, a language intelligence company. Prior to founding Sorcero, she was founder and CEO of 42 Strategies, managing digital transformation projects for Richard Branson's Virgin United. Al Gore's Climate Reality Project, and Bloomberg Philanthropies. An Atlas Corps fellow and later board member, she designed the Global Leadership Lab, training global leaders from over 60 countries. That's pretty impressive, uh, Dipanada, in uh, just the 10 or so years that you've been out of school. Uh, what has led you to being an entrepreneur? Mm. Um. Thank you, Carol. That's I, I'm flattered. Uh, Ten years out of graduate school, so maybe just a little older than I would like. Um, I can't stop building things. When I when I see a problem, I get really, really quite obsessed with it. And I'm also historically and my family quite ingrained public service in me and systems thinking. So that's a dangerous combination when you see problems everywhere, can't stop thinking about it, must do something about it, must ideally be good for the world. And ideally it is a system, so it won't be so dependent on one person to exist and to be sustainable and to create change in the world. So these three things combined has kept me in entrepreneurship for a really long time. And every time I get a quote unquote job, I very quickly then go back to building something or joining something that has just started. Do you get entrepreneurship from your family? Yes and no. Um, I certainly get being a, the CEO or being the chief executive for my family. Mm -hmm. um, I think we had some entrepreneurs maybe three, four generations ago. Um, but I get a lot of system creation from them. And that's maybe the way they have given me the entrepreneurship bug is they, when they join a, an organization, they tend to change the shape of it in the course of their careers there. And they improve it in every possible way. And even for decades after they've retired, people still come up to them and compliment them on the work that they've done. Tell me what, what Sorcero does. What is language intelligence? Um, so as you know, or as you may not know, um, there are absolutely no life sciences products, so drugs or devices or diagnostics that go to market without the support of the medical affairs team. You know, they're a little bit like the product management organization within a tech company. But the, there are a couple of very big differences. One is they're all SMEs. They're all MD, PhDs. They have therapeutic mm -hmm. area expertise. Um, they're extremely well paid. And there are not that many of them in the world with that particular combination of qualifications and expertise. And it is their job to make sure that a product retains and ex expands its market share and retains and expands its market access, so you know it gets reimbursed for, by delivering scientific and clinical data mm -hmm. to the field. That's mm -hmm. what their job is. And when I say scientific and clinical data, I mean structured, unstructured. It means it's internal and external sources. It could be CRM, advisory boards, literature, congresses, social media, and, and more. And this data mission that they're on, it, they're wholly compromised in achieving it because they do not have existing mm -hmm. workflows. So this is not a standard set of workflows. They do not have standardized fit-to-purpose analytics. 
And unlike, let's say, retail, where you can have an insane amount of analytics behind the buying of a shoe, there just is not that complementary degree of sophistication in how decisions are being made in life sciences, backing safety and efficacy of drugs. And there is a real shift in the market and a real shift in regulation in making that happen. And that's the green space or that's the opportunity into which Sorcero has stepped in with its analytics platform. So what we do is we make it possible for our customers in medical affairs to measure their work, to message better, to ensure that the data that needs to back their products are delivered in a timely and high quality and comprehensive manner to whether it be physicians or regulators or their market access teams and so on and so forth. Um, Language intelligence is our approach to AI. And the reason we call it language intelligence is because we have indexed on how do you make sure that the AI, the algorithms that we're using are quote unquote, again, understanding of the domain they're being applied to. So how do you bring contextual understanding into the algorithms you use so the product features are very fit to purpose? Um, And so we've taken some very, very interesting approaches to AI that I might note out on, but I will spare you for right now Mm -hmm. that, uh, that enables us to bring that transparency, the accuracy, the sensitivity into the data and into the features we deliver. Can you give me give me a real time example of what that like? Paint me a picture of what that actually looks like. Um, a, a use case. Yes. Sure. So we have uh, we have three products in market. Uh, one is called intelligent publication monitoring. One is called medical insights management, and one is called clarity medical analytics. So let me give you a use case for IPM or intelligent publication monitoring. So publications all of them, open source, not so open source, and so forth, forms one of the biggest sources of information for our teams. It's scientific and clinical information. It's often peer-reviewed, although we'll also handle preprints. And this is telling them how their products are doing, whether there have been any changes in their therapeutic area. It gives them Mm. situational awareness. When they're tracking against their products, that large volume data analysis also tells them if there are gaps in the data that they have put into market. So if I've taken a new drug to market and just isn't enough data backing its usage for, let's say, 50-year-old women, it'll be very difficult for physicians to prescribe that drug. So it's their job to understand and have situational awareness of the market, of their products, of the efficacy of emerging new uses, um, as well as gaps in the data that they have created and sent out into the market. So using our platform, they are able to do that. So somebody logs into intelligent publication monitoring, their universe, so their area of interest has already been predefined and preset by a very long complex search string. Then they're offered a whole bunch of auto summaries to help them see what articles to look at and why. And this is really important because we have customers who are looking at 10,000s or tens of thousands of summaries a week. And then we have people who are looking at 10, depending, of course, on the scale and on the therapeutic area and their product. And there is absolutely no way a human being can do it without the aid of software. Um, And that's maybe another point I'd like to make before I kind of end this question is... Mm -hmm. um, our mission is to augment human beings. So if every every product is indexed to make them faster, make them more scalable, hopefully reduce errors and help them see around corners. So help them find something that they would not normally have found, but is still centered very much around the human user. That's really interesting. So, so you got your bachelor's in history and your master's in, in business and development. How do you, how do you, tell me about your journey <laughs> from there. This is a really comp, to me, it sounds very complex. So tell me about your journey from, you know, that point of getting your master's in 2010 and, and, and a degree not in anything, having anything to do with, you know, medical or healthcare, to your journey to where you are today to Sorcero and, and founding it, you know, a little over four years ago. I would say that's probably the biggest advantage I have. Um, But one of the biggest, one of the things I have learned is a hyper-specialist often also is blinded because they don't have as much awareness of what other markets, other verticals, how other people are solving problems. So it makes it much harder for them to learn and to bring in innovative solutions that have worked elsewhere and customize them. Um, You know, history teaches you that. Yeah. History teaches you that 
it's almost certainly have been done before somewhere at some point in time. And if you're able to find out what that is, you can customize solutions. But let me actually address your question about tech. Uh, So I come from a family of female scientists, all of them. Um, And tech has been a big part of my life since I was Mm -hmm. very, very young. I had a computer very young. I started playing with tech very young. So I consider myself a tech native. And when I look at a problem, considering a technical solution to the problem or a technological solution to a problem alongside a programmatic or a political or a policy, it's pretty natural to me. Um, And in that, my focus has always been to design products using tech rather than being the person who's writing code. And that means that I must have an understanding of the business problem, the user, the situation, the desired ROI. It has never been as required as it were for me to, you know, be in, have have a comp sci degree. That's on the tech side. Mm-hmm. On the public health side, you know, when I studied globalization and business, my focus and my thesis was actually on the health outcomes for uh, for for unorganized labor. And when you look at labor, when you look at supply chains, when you look at climate, when you look at just global business, health is a massive part of it. So if right. you want to, if you want to have a healthy economy, you have to have a healthy population. If you want a healthy workforce, you have a healthy population. Health is everywhere. Um, and so as a core part of my degree, but also my work after that, considering health outcomes, looking at access to primary health care, looking at whether our, you know, whether workers are able to pay and access for health services has been a core part of it. Subsequently, uh, as a part of 42 Strategies, I built digital scientific platforms for some of the world's largest public health efforts. Mm. Primarily, um, I Sorcero came out of a lot of the challenges we faced in communicating health science to a very diverse audience. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I supported teams in 20 different countries working on the largest drivers of lung cancer, of metabolic disease, and of interventional surgery. And despite the massive challenges of com- communicating complex science, we were actually able to transform well over a billion health outcomes. So that inspiration combined with the data problem that I noticed, and then I started digging into how are we treated when we get mm-hmm. sick, really zeroed in on that there is this incredible team in life sciences with the right qualifications, the right mission, the right guardrails to be mm-hmm. the keeper of that data, and they are wholly unserved by effective software. That's really interesting. So, so as I mentioned, you founded the company um, just over four years ago in April of 2018. You've taken 15 million in institutional capital. What has investors excited about Sorcero? From what they tell me, um, I would say, first and foremost, this is a very different way of looking at the problem and solving it. And it is in many ways much more effective, you know, partly for the earlier point I made. It's not so deep in the industry that we're able to bring in software and approaches that have worked in other markets mm-hmm. really effectively. Mm-hmm. Number two, we're a disciplined lot. Uh, you know, we've I think we all have done enough science to run very disciplined experiments. So we have spent the last three and a half years very rigorously testing out all of the right markets, the right use cases. So there's a lot of rigor in the choices we make. And so when last year we decided to dump all the other verticals and be all life sciences vertical SaaS, uh, it started to immediately show up in in our product, in our traction. Next, uh, one of our other co-founders, the CTO, Walter Bender, is one of the better-known technologists in the world. And he has driven our, our small, scrappy team to build and to deliver some of the best fit-to-purpose AI that actually works in market at scale, is explainable, and is much more focused on solving business problems. Um, Last, but certainly not the least, I would comment on the capital efficiency. Um, You know, 15, 15 and a half is neither here nor there. Um, In context, it can seem like a lot, but in context of what we're doing and what we've set out to do in the world and what we have done, it is a pretty capital efficient company. And then, you know, to kind of icing on the cake, we're a certified B Corp. So we've managed to marry purpose and profit, which is very core to what we do. Um, And I think it's sort of the combination of all of these things, the marquee customers, the really meaningful use cases, actually being able to keep our promises and then growing a company through this miserable time in the world. um, It's probably some of the things they're, they're more excited about. Yeah. Well, right. And, and, you know, you, you, 
early on talked about, you know, you're, you have a passion about solving problems, right? I mean, I live in that same world. There are, you know, we, we live in, we live in a world with lots of problems, <laughs> you know, and I, I would say the, the lowest common denominator among all the founders that I, that I talk to is that they have somehow either stumbled into a problem or discovered a problem that truly needs to be solved. Like, like their customers need it to be solved. Yes. Right. To run their businesses more efficiently, more effectively, with less, you know, headache, whatever that might be. So speaking of your speaking of your customers, how do you how do you find your prospects? Or are they finding you? Is it, you know, inbound, outbound, a combination of both? What? Um, so our so our GTM has sort of two major halves to it. We go to market with partners and we go to market mm. directly. Uh, mm -hmm. On the partner side, we're kind of partnered with four categories of firms. One are the specialty mm -hmm. consulting firms for life sciences mm -hmm. who mm -hmm. are, you know, who know the market really well and who have been doing mm -hmm. some of this work, if not a lot of this work, wholly mm -hmm. manually. Um, and they co-sell with us. They bring us into deals. They, uh, yep. you know, they sell our tech across the market. That's one sure. great way. The mm -hmm. second is the more common, um, the white collar, big consulting firm. And, you know, they'll take mm -hmm. on a massive project to custom build yep. some massive thing for company A. And then they will bake in our product or pieces of it in, mm -hmm. as a part of that solution. Uh, the third is a product company itself that may be serving life sciences and needs one or more of our features or AI services via API mm -hmm. to power their product. And that mm -hmm. gives them the ability to extend the product offering and take more market share. And we kind of do it right. together. And then the fourth is the cloud. And, you know, being consumable from the cloud mm -hmm. is really, really important, but also cl the cloud gives a ton of credits to our customers so they can actually pay for us mm -hmm using those credits if we're already on on that particular cloud. So mm -hmm. this is sort of our, our partner-based GTM. It's been really effective for lots of different reasons, but it allows us to really understand the market because these consultants know their users better than most software right. companies ever will. And I've developed a real appreciation and a real respect for their very, very intimate knowledge of the user. Mm -hmm. Uh, direct marketing is, you know, online. We have our standard emails programs. We do a lot on conferences and we do get inbounds as well, referrals and people will find us on the web. And then that kind of goes mm -hmm. through the usual, I want a demo, we do a demo and so on and so forth from there. So you, you had mentioned that you were in other verticals and dumped them to focus exclusively on life sciences. Uh, what was the impetus behind that and, and how did that really occur? Well, I think there are a couple of really important things to consider when you're choosing a vertical for a product that is going to actually be quite complex to build. Um, and it's going to therefore be quote unquote expensive as well. And it's an expensive product in, in terms of an annual contract value. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. uh, a market has to have enough space in it. The, the TAM has to be big enough for us over a period of time to, to, to own enough of it. And what I found is where we could make a difference in the other vertical, the TAM maybe wasn't that big. Number two is, is it, you know, the, the usual vitamin painkiller question. Um, and we just found that life sciences, it's a painkiller. They're, they are, you know, their drugs will be taken off market. They'll lose market share. They'll lose competitive edge. They'll lose. And that regulations plus data pressure together makes for a really hungry, appreciative market for products like us. And that just wasn't there as much in the other verticals. Um, last is, of course, you know, one of the other things I look at is what could the lifetime value of these of these deals be over, you know, you're mm -hmm. doing enterprise SaaS, mm -hmm. you're supposed to be extremely sticky, high retention, low churn. Right. How much can I make? What is my upsell opportunity? And Life Sciences offers some of the most unique upselling opportunity across therapeutic areas, across different companies in the conglomerate, across products and teams where they can over and over and again buy our entire product suite. Mm -hmm. And that's been another critical piece of choosing this market is the, the land and expand. Um, mm -hmm. And of course, we were looking for a space where we would we could be the system of record. 
And this is where we can be the system of record for those various panoply of data subscriptions and so on and so forth. It's exciting also the market's growing at a 29% CAGR. You want to be in a growing market. So um, new use cases, new problems, just bigger. Um, so these were some of the factors we considered or some of the main factors we considered and we were looking out for when we uh, chose to jettison most of everything else. Right, right. So you mentioned that it's your fairly expensive product. Uh, what is your average deal size from an ACV standpoint? Um, it's and 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 do com- and do companies just subscribe for a year? Is it a three year? What does that look like? So it is enterprise SaaS subscription. So they do subscribe. Um, they do it typically for a year. Some do will do it for three. Um, and of course, therefore annual renewals. It's in six figures and up. Um, okay. Just in in general. Uh, for any of the products with with slight variations. And of course, because it's enterprise SaaS, you can add new components, you know, pay for a new analytic, that sort right. of stuff. But it's mm-hmm. all six figures and up. Okay. What's what's your sales cycle look like? How long does it take? It depends a little bit on direct vis-a-vis mm-hmm. partner. Is it the is it the less expensive product or the more complex one? Mm-hmm. But on the shortest side, I think my record was fifty seven days. Very exciting. <laughs> um, on the longer side, I would say it's probably between four and five months. Um, okay. Sometimes six, depending on. It's often really the the contracting process is what takes much longer mm-hmm. than the yes. you know than the sale. You get to a yes, and then yep. you finagle with legal and IT for the next mm-hmm. zillion years. Yeah. Well. Yeah. We're preaching to the choir there. That's for <laughs> sure. I'm sure. I'm sure everybody listening to this is going. Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> really exactly. great for your heart health. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah, right. <laughs> So what's the, is, I mean, do you have competitors? What's, mm-hmm. what's the competitive nature of your business? Sure. I, we do have competitors and I really like that. You know, you know, you're in a good market when people are like That's competing exactly right. for that market. Yep. 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 So we have sort of, I would say two complexions of competitors. We have point solutions. So, you know, um, a, a product, an application, a single thing that did a piece of it. You know, someone collected the data or someone is uh, giving them a data feed or giving them data visualization on a stream. So we have point solutions and we usually come up against them when we are selling a particular product like IPM or intelligent publication monitoring. We'll have a few people we will run into the market who have enough of an overlap for our customers to say, what is the difference? Um, Mm -hmm. And we're able to differentiate ourselves, certainly, but that's one category of competitor. Mm -hmm. The other category of competitor is someone with like a multi-product suite. So they're not always on a platform. So we are truly on a platform in that all of those products are fed by the same infrastructure. They're all interconnected. They can, you know, there's an inherent network effect at the data level as much as it is on, you know, sales level. Uh, But they'll come up with a multi-product suite. So there is this temptation to think that they will be able to kind of take care of every emerging use case. We're fine more often than not, of course, they can only work with one type of data or, you know, they they don't really have AI services. They can't scale it. So there are some barriers there, but that's kind of the second category is the multi-product company. Uh, But these are sort of the the two categories of competitors we we will come across in the market. So, uh, Dipanada, this this is your second uh, um, uh, company that you're the CEO of. The first was 42 Strategies, as you had mentioned. Um, what would you say, looking back to the you know three and a half years you spent doing that, and now just over four years as a CEO, what are some of the lessons you have learned as a leader, and what are some of the mistakes that you have made along the way? Oh, so many. Yeah, well, uh, both, right? So, right, of um, course, we all do. So last week, it's funny you asked me, but but last week I was talking to one of my investors. I had I had to take a, a tough decision and I was feeling a little blue. Um, and I called him and, and he had been an entrepreneur before and grown and then IPO'd his company. And I often right. look at him yep. as someone to talk to, it, you know, do that yep. little bit of the founder CEO thing. Mm-hmm. And he reminded me of the Theodore Roosevelt quote about the, it's not the critic that counts, but the man in the arena. Um, and I think that by and large over the last seven years, seven and a half years of being the CEO of an organization, that's really what I've really majorly learned to appreciate is that absolutely everyone is going to have something to say. 
about you, about what you've done, about what you're saying, about what you didn't do. All of them know how to do it better, but none yeah. of them will actually do it. So mm-hmm. learning to, to take that criticism and filter it down, take what is useful and keep growing and throw everything out, that one's probably a big one. Thing number two is a visceral appreciation is that as the CEO, it's always your fault. But when Buck stops there. But when you do something good, that's your team. And and that's humbling. And it can I'm sure at times feels like unfair even, but it is a great feeling when you can point to your team when you all have won something and say, look at this great group of people. So that's number mm-hmm. two. Mm-hmm. I would say number three is you know, the empathy part is really interesting. So you want to encourage your team to be themselves and 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 sort of bring their quote unquote whole selves to work. But you also want to moderate it in a way that that bringing whole self does not in any way compromise a space, creativity, professionalism. And that balance is a really delicate one. And I've certainly made all sorts of interesting mistakes in that balance over the last three years as you're doing this sort of remotely. Um, I think the next is I've really started to disambiguate between builders and professionals, or I don't want to use the word execs because that always indicates sort of top level, but builders are a very unique breed. You know, not everybody can go from zero to 50. There are so many more people than can take something that's at 50 and take it 100. But zero to 50, oh my God, that's probably where I've made the most mistakes is 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 knowing who is the right person for zero to 50, who can right, define a de novo, who can handle a blank page, mm-hmm. who can, you know, who has that high throughput. And uh, really definitely uh, learned a lot um, over there. And then last, and this maybe speaks a little more to some of my other personal identifiers, you know, woman, color, young, whatever you want to call it. You... If you hire somebody and they think that they know better than you, that's probably a relationship that's already ended. And, you know, it, it's it's interesting, but there is this tendency, again, to say, well, you know, you've hired me. Let me tell you how to do your job. And there's this little bit of patronizing slap on the back thing that I've certainly experienced. Um, and And earlier on, I would probably take it as a, I should do something about it. And now I'm like, no, no, no. Welcome to my world. And you've chosen to take direction from me and you must. So there are, those are sort of like the mixed bag of lessons I've been pondering on in addition to a whole lot of other things. I have an incredible coach, so I've learned a ton from her as well. But Good. these are some of the things that stand out to me. Yeah, that's fantastic. So, you know, I don't want to spend too much time focusing on uh, female founder and CEO, um, specifically female CEO. But um, I think it's important to mention that there are still not many women CEOs. Um, And you talked about, uh, in what you just explained, empathy. And I'm wondering if, in your experience, if if you feel like as a woman, you can be more empathetic. Hmm, that's an interesting question. I have certainly met very empathetic men and very unempathetic women. So that's that that's what it is. But um, I would say that I'm a fairly empathetic person, sometimes even too much. <laughs> but um, I do know that history teaches us that women often make better leaders through uh, these sorts of uncertain times. I would agree. Um, yeah. And that's there's just hard data on that for for many, many hundreds of years. Um, And I index on that heavily. I think number two, uh, the way women are often brought up in, often brought up, uh, they're able to take care of people. And I always remember the the microfinance story, right? Why are the microfinance loans given to women? Um, And it's a little bit of that is that we are some, we have a propensity to in, you know, to increase the size of the table, to bring everyone into the fold, to make sure that we're reinvesting in, in their growth. I also think the women are much more used to saying sorry. 
And, you know, in adult, in a workplace where CEOs very rarely say, I screwed up and it's my mm-hmm. fault, that's really refreshing. I mean, don't get me wrong, it's not as well received everywhere, but I think it's important for the exec to say, I'm sorry, or I screwed up, or that was a bad decision and we're going to do something about it. And I think women are just generally a little more able to say, um, sorry, they may be even a little more trained uh, to do so. Um I think last but certainly not the least, in our market, our market is staffed with women leaders. And it's one of the great joys of working in medical affairs is incredible women just at all the levels of the customers we work at from the highest to, you know, our our basic user. Um, So I seem to have found myself at least working with a lot of women in in who we serve um, and seeing some of their amazing leadership come into play. Mm -hmm. So you have about 60 employees now. Mm-hmm. Um, how many on the executive team, including yourself? I would count about, well, exec is sort of the usual CEO, CFO, chief commercial, mm-hmm. and me. So that's four. But then we have a leadership team. There's a CTO and so forth. So I'd say plus minus about eight in total okay. that I would count as senior leadership of the company. What's the, of those eight people, what's the sort of diversity makeup of those? So there's a lot of racial diversity and actually okay. age as well. Um, and in gender, it's it's currently three, including me, of the, of the eight. Um, mm-hmm. And incredible, just, yeah, just the best people. Like I am, I'm very, very thrilled at, at this particular combination mm-hmm. of people. Mm-hmm. How did you build that executive team of seven other people aside from yourself? Painfully. Um, Well, the CTO I met at dinner at a friend's. So that was (laughs) the usual story. The chief commercial officer and one of our other co-founders I hired after he had been like sort of hanging out at the company a bunch kind of hired him when he was done with his last company, which had grown out. Mm-hmm. The others, one of the others I've known for a while in the DC circuit and wanted to work with him for many years, ever since I sort of met him. And then the opportunity presented itself. Mm-hmm. The others were just hired through a recruiting process. Um, but I would say that overall, the hiring, hiring the right leadership team through this time, oof really hot. Yeah, that's, that's really great. Um, I'm just, just, it's funny that you mentioned that because it's, it, we're just starting to work on a, on a white paper about, you know, the five, uh, five mistakes CEOs make in building a leadership team. Right. And I, I'm curious of these other seven people that you have working uh, alongside you, did they all start? I mean, are they all the first hire in that in that role? Or did you turn over any of those? They're not all the first hire. Okay. And um, so, yeah. So how many, how many, how many of those seven, how many are in their, you know, where were the mistakes? Which were the, not which were the mistakes, how many were there? Like, you know, well, we had our first CFO, that person didn't work out. But <laughs> uh, so how there, many, how many of those mishires were there? I would say there's just only been one round of mishires when there have been mishires. And and I actually want to maybe rephrase the word mishire itself. There wasn't a, we misjudged the fit. And this is actually one of the things I think about. Yeah. So I think about this a lot is not just what, what was it for the company? But what was it for that person? Because if the company isn't happy with a employee, most likely that employee isn't happy at the company either. Mm-hmm. So one of the things we have instituted is a rating for our own selves on how many hiring mistakes we have made. And that kind of helps us evaluate ourselves as hiring managers. And are we able to set our teams up for success? And are we bringing the right people in? Because again, is this the right place for those people? Um so yeah, of course, there have been certain misfires, and I'm sure there will be more as the company continues to grow, hopefully less so at the leadership level as that level kind of firms up and becomes the leadership level for the next several years. Um, but um, if I had to categorize them, I think the first and foremost is what someone says they can do vis-a-vis what they can actually do. Um, and you know, entrepreneurs are a dangerous bunch. They're weird. 
They can somehow figure things out that other people cannot. Mm -hmm. Um, And I have no answers exactly why. I'm sure there have been lots of digging into it. But as an entrepreneur, I'll just go out and I'll do a thing. And, you know, I may not, I may, it may only be for the first time and I'll still go do a thing and I'll figure out how to do it as best as possible. And that ability maybe is a little rarer than one thinks. So there is the, I can do it, of course, theoretically. And then you kind of throw them in the fire and they're like, <laughs> there's a little bit of a shriek and a, I've never done this before or you have to tell me how to do it. And so that part I've really begun to appreciate. Do you, do you believe that that's what the sort of the com- lowest common denominator was around misjudging fit? Yes. Okay. Yes. Is yeah. sort of knowing exactly how to take what it is right now and move it closer to its North Star. You know, the next whatever mm-hmm. number of steps you can. That's a much harder thing to do than, again, it's the zero to 50, because we're still in the zero to 50 phase. And so in the Mm -hmm. zero to 50, if everything's already set up, the systems are all going, sure, but the systems aren't going. So how do I do it now? That's right. It's a very very different uh, growth strategy. Yeah. And the stress that comes with it, right? Mm Because you're always facing the fire. And not Mm -hmm. everybody, well, I think everybody wants to be on the top, but not everybody fully appreciates the facing of the fire. Right. Um, Yeah. yeah. So tell me about your overall talent strategy Mm. and where you've had your biggest challenges. So, of course, you know. know, From from zero to 60, please. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, I think my first and probably biggest challenge earlier on, it's not so much a challenge now, was, you know, I'm a relatively recent immigrant into the country. I haven't worked here. I haven't gone to school here. So I didn't have Mm -hmm. a big, rich network of my own that I was just Mm -hmm, growing mm -hmm. from. So whereas earlier in our company's life cycle, we could have been expected to do much more in-network hiring. I had to bring on more recruiters and more externals and more referrals. Furrows, and that made it harder to find the right person. And I didn't maybe have much of an opportunity to build a rapport with them. I was also doing a lot of this remotely. Like our team has always ended up being distributed. And that means, again, you know, it, you're not seeing them often enough. You don't have a gut feel. So that's been difficult. I think the other part for me has been disambiguating between the builder and the executive. That's been a consistent challenge, as you know, you said. Um, and I maybe have over-indexed a little bit on brands and schools and, and what folks say in their resume. And I'm learning as I hire more the massive delta between the show that is put up um, by both parties and then the truth um, and, and just learning to be better at it. I think number three is um, feedback, you know, giving effective feedback to people who are at your level. Mm-hmm. Pretty interesting, but not that easy to do because you want to have a collegial atmosphere. But if they've done an awful piece of work, you're like, oh, my God, I have to tell you that this is awful and tell you why and then tell you these things and mixed reception. <laughs> you know, it's mm-hmm. it's a mixed reception there. Um, so that that's another kind of interesting thing to unpack is how do you give effective feedback to people who are really at your level, not not lower in any way and are not inherently tuned to say yes, sir as they must not well, be, so. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, the the high level, and it's it's certainly more complex than this, the high level of giving effective feedback is, you know, I would, I would ask, you know, have you built a culture of feedback first? Because if you've built a culture of feedback, everyone welcomes that feedback. If you haven't, that's where you have a greater challenge, right? And part of building a culture of feedback is, Really, I mean, many people have to be taught how to do this, how to communicate effectively, Mm -hmm. right? It's not not in everyone's nature how to communicate effectively. They don't actually look at what are the words, the language I'm actually using. And could somebody, you know, could could that be, could the word I'm using be living in a blind spot and, and landing for them in a really negative way, whether they recognize it or not? Yeah. Right? Yeah. One of my questions I used to ask, I still do in interviews when I'm the hiring manager is, what are the PTSDs you're going to bring with you into the company? Because that does impact how someone- Assuming that that's not living in a blind spot for them. Correct. Right. And more often than not, it is a question they have to think about. Yes. But it is a question they always also have an answer to. 
And um, and so I, I try and tease that out so that at least on my team, I have a good idea of what each person's sort of fears and scars and insecurities are, because we all have them. And so it makes it easier for me then to engage with them because I already know where they're coming from and I'll just avoid a certain set of concepts or I'll reassure them in certain other ways. And that's so far one of the more effective things I've been able to do is is just address that. But I, I did want to make a comment about the state of mental health. It's a colossal disaster right now. So even the most resilient of, the strongest of, the most calm of people are struggling right now to bring that side of them into work every single day with good reason, which I think also, again, complicates the life of someone like me who has to continue to present this sort of stable, steady, rigor-driven growth and progress while people around them may not be in the best place to, to be that rock. Um, and that's been another challenge, but it's been a good one. And I'm sure all of us are better for it somehow is, is learning how to have long-term resilience. Yeah. Uh, let me talk a little bit about, you said you, because you didn't have a good network, um, since you, you know, came from, from India that you, um, hired a lot of, uh, different agency recruiting agencies. How did you find those firms and what kind of mistakes did you make in like maybe hiring a firm and going, oh yeah, I'm, I can't work with these people ever again? Because um, that's a huge problem. Absolutely. Um, you know, somebody who's been you know doing what I've been doing for 30 years has been seeing for many, many, many years. And the, the internet really exacerbated the <laughs> I think the internet really. may have exacerbated lots of problems at this well, point. Yeah, the internet's been wonderful and really, really horrible <laughs> all at the same time. As most things made by human beings yeah. are. Um, yeah, yeah. So I would say on the recruiter side, it was a lot of like kind of community recommendations, investor recommendations. Um, We have worked with more, I would say more um, individual based agencies than sort of just the the average large. Yeah, like more, we've indexed more for that rather than just go for the average large. We have also started leaning more on vertical specific, which is really, really important. So once we chose Mm -hmm. life sciences, we kind of changed our whole framework for who we were looking for mm-hmm. in different teams, functions, and levels, and indexed right. much heavily, much more heavily towards life sciences, and that's really borne fruit. Um, I would say some of the some of the kind of missing each other on the recruiter side is one is really understanding what kind of background and experience a, a really great candidate needs. So again, going back to the builder. So if you're just like, but this person came from a massive, awesome company. And I'm like, yes, massive, awesome company where they were employee number 1000. They don't know anything. They've been told what to do. Yeah. If a recruiter is pitching you that, that's not a firm you should be working with. So, you know, there's been a lot of that. The other part has been sort of really not understanding pay scales at all. Um, Particularly last year, it was bizarre um, sort of you know, just the base salaries people were being offered for different roles and different levels. And I'm like, mm-hmm. how is everything leveling at this? It's ridiculous. Like that, yeah. it doesn't yeah. make a lot of sense. But again, yeah. it goes back to that issue of if I'm coming from a massive company, which is either public or almost there, and I'm just getting paid in, in packages and ways that most startups cannot bundle together That's for me. Correct. Because the cost to company is prohibitive. So I've noticed some mismatch there where, you know, recruiter be, but, but you should just give 30 grand more. I'm like, actually not. That's a, that's a yeah, non-de-minimus percentage. Not you should ever work with ever again. <laughs> so, no, really. so, there, so, you know, there's been that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I would say those are maybe the biggest ones. And it's, is not getting the real fit and then suggesting a remuneration package that is just not suitable with the stage of company we're at and, and should not yeah. be, and we shouldn't be forced yeah. into. Yeah. Yeah. That's that. I will say that is a mistake. A lot of companies make regardless of size, you know, or, but certainly with startups where it is so much more mission critical that you not turn over a lot of employees. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that can really be the the death of you. And not only the death of you will cause you to have to take more institutional capital. And the minute you do that, that you're begging for more money, you have to give more of your company away. <laughs> Fair. Yeah, one does. Um, and I think 
the way I look at sort of hiring mistakes more than anything else is it's time is not my friend at a startup. Time is my biggest, greatest enemy, right? There's never enough time. So when I lose a person, I'm actually losing time more than anything else, mm-hmm. whether it's because time they've made money a, yeah, t- and time yep. is money. So right. the biggest hit is time. And, and, you know, you want per, to perfect your hiring process as much as possible so that you don't lose out on a, on a second a day a week. Really agree. Um, what makes your company culture unique? Like if I was, if I was an employee, what would I notice? So there is a real hyper focus on setting people up for success. So we don't, you know, and and so we continuously improve. So we'll take the feedback, we'll get better. Managers are like more and more held to those standards of, are you setting your teams up for success? Um, And that's been important. And number two is, our, our employees give us plenty of feedback. And that's another one. Number three mm-hmm. is people comment on how fast things change. Um, I'm a big believer in the concept of Kaizen. I expect change. I expect to be better myself as an, and I expect my team to be better. And we and I like to invest mm-hmm. in it, which means it does not matter as much what we are today. It matters very much if we're not bet, getting better tomorrow and getting better really, really, really fast. Um, and last but certainly not the least, um, I don't know if everyone on the team is going to inherently say this, but I will say this is um, the culture I'm gunning for is that of, you know, we all have to work shoulder to shoulder. This isn't, yeah. you know, if your elbows out, political, we're just never going to win. And mm-hmm. we need to remember that not one of us cannot win while the other loses in this environment. So these are maybe some of the things, of course, the mission driven part, we're a bunch of nerds. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of great jokes on our Slack. Um, <laughs> yes. That's great. What does your day to day look like as a leader? Like what do you spend your time doing? I read a lot. Um, I think one of, one of our advantages comes from the fact that the leadership team reads um, everything from business to culture, to history, to technology, to art, to just everything. Um, yeah, diverse. Yeah. Th- and that, um, and I'll probably on average spend two to three hours a day reading. It's just sort of spread out in the course of the day. I've always been mm-hmm. a reader and that's helps. Um, I try and speak to people who are either mentors or advisors as frequently as possible, check in with them and, and make sure we're not completely off track. Mm-hmm. Um, I leave as much of my day open as possible for things that I do not know, for the unknown unknowns. Uh, yeah, one of my it. favorite advisors told me years ago at this point, or at least a year and a half ago, which feels like a lifetime, um, that a CEO should have 60% of their calendar open. And I remember at that time I was mm-hmm. on this Zoom hop, <laughs> eight hours of back-to-back meetings. Yeah. Um, and I took that and I did it. And I don't know if 60% or 50, but there is enough space in there for me yeah. to take care of the unknown unknowns as they come right. up. Um, so I try and do that. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing I try and do is I, I try and unblock my team immediately. So I try as far as possible for them to not have to wait on me. Um, and, and I give, and I've given them permission to, to badger me. So I'm like, Mm -hmm. you, I may forget, but don't be ashamed to call me up and say, I need this now. So, um, those are some of the things that I've brought into sort of a day to day. Um, Mm -hmm. and that's been extremely helpful. The other thing I do, and I don't know if that's going to scale, <laughs> is I keep an eye on the micro as well as the macro. I don't engage with mm-hmm. the micro, but I know. Um, mm-hmm. And whether that's just from like paying attention to the various different Slack channels or yeah. just reading all the things, I make sure that I I know what's going on in the company yeah. aside from someone having to come and tell me, hey, this thing is happening. And I'm still, I'm, I'm yeah. sure I'm still going to find out, but mm-hmm. I try as best as I can to know. Yeah, that I mean, that's a really good point because you, you know it, it is much easier to to focus on the micro when you're smaller, right? And and keep I should not even focus on it, but really just keep your eyes mm. on it, right? As as a thing, and that is relatively impossible or impractical when you have a giant organization underneath you, which is of course one of the biggest problems with large companies. The CEOs 
have to rely on everyone underneath them. And what if somebody's not pulling their weight? They're not bringing to their attention the things that need to be brought to their attention, right? Now, of course, if you've got an executive team that's, you know, rowing together in the same direction, that shouldn't be a problem. Yes. Right. And, and that's really interesting. How do you, uh, uh, spend your time, uh, your free time? Oh, um, I was going to crack a terrible joke about what free time do you speak of, but yeah, right. well, I have made good faith. Yeah, right. <laughs> no, but I have actually made good faith investment in that because it's important for me to have good. free time or at mm-hmm. least take one and a half days every weekend for myself. So what do I do when I do that? I read uh, mostly science fiction um, or, or history or art. <laughs> Um, yeah. I listen to music, a lot of it, both live and, and not live. Um, I go watch theater a lot. I really, really like the arts. It's just a yeah. big part of my life. It's a big part of how I'm inspired, how mm-hmm. I learn. So I do that. I've recently been um, very committed to meeting people who are very successful in other spaces. Um, so I don't completely lose track of what's happening in other movements, in other industries and other issues. So I've made a good faith effort to be in more diverse communities where we're not just talking about startups all the time or my startup all the time. Um, and last but certainly not the least, I travel when I can. It's been, of course, Mm. a little botched recently, but Mm. I travel when I can and, you know, again, immerse myself in a different Mm. culture, a different space, Mm -hmm. keeps me, keeps me, uh, sharp. So if someone listening to this uh, is thinking, well, this is a really interesting company. I've got the, I think I could have the right kind of background to, to work for them. What, would, what should they do? Uh, you should drop us a note at info at sorcero.com, S-O-R-C-E-R-O.com. Uh, and, um, and tell us what drew your attention and one of us will get back to you. Um, Great. And we'd, you know, love to hear it. With that, Dapana Dadas, uh, uh, co-founder and CEO of Sorcero. Thanks for your time today. I always uh, enjoy interviewing really smart people like you. So thank you. Thank you, Carol. This has been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to Authentically Successful. If you are a successful founder or CEO who would like to be on this program, please visit verticalelevation.com slash podcast slash apply. If you learned something from this interview and it made a difference, please share it on LinkedIn or Twitter. You can also do a quick screenshot with your phone and text it to a friend. And if you know of someone who would be a great guest, tag them on LinkedIn or Twitter to let them know about the show and include the hashtag authentically successful. I love seeing your posts and great suggestions. Lastly, we are regularly putting out new episodes and content. And to make sure you don't miss any episodes, please subscribe. Your thumbs up, ratings, and reviews go a long way to help promote the show and mean a lot to me and my team. If you want to know more, go to our website, verticalelevation.com, or follow me on LinkedIn. This is Carol Schultz. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.